I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi guys, welcome to Heavy Metal Tones this week with uh, your podcast host Tony Evans and special guest Benji Murphy. Um, hopefully you listened into part one of the uh, this two-part special or based around the album 194, uh, sorry, uh, The Great War, the Great War um, by Sabaton, uh, or Sabaton, um, whichever you like to pronounce it. Uh, we couldn't get it all into one episode as I told you last week, so we're squeezing it into tightly and sexually into two parts um <laughs> take that as you will i have my tea he sexy. has is sexy sexy um you know and so i hope you've listened to the album as i told you to do it is part of your homework and we will be we will be marked on it um so uh the note i said at the end of the first episode i said remind me about the hand grenade story story about hand grenades right so very good friend of mine, and he hopefully does listen to my show every now and again, he dips in and dips out, is uh, Robert Mills. Now, that might give you a little hint of what I'm about to say, but I um, have worked, I worked with Robert Mills for 11 years. Uh, he's a music nut like me. Um, he's from the UK like me, living here in Australia. His great-grandfather was the inventor of the Mills bomb. Now, the Mills bomb is, as Benji will know, is the progenitor of the hand grenade, or the, the forerunner of the hand grenade. It was still a hand grenade, but when you pulled the pin out and threw it, it didn't go off. It went on impact, I believe, the Mills bomb. Uh, whereas the hand grenade, or the modern hand grenade, it's got a timing pin on it. And so you let go of the pin, hold, let go, and chuck, and you've got three seconds, six seconds, whatever you have. So, um, you know, Mills bombs, and I did quite, said to him, I said, you know, I think Millsy, I think your grandfather was one of the biggest killers in history. <laughs> and he probably is. It might have been history's greatest monster. I think no, he probably, no, 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 no. Millsy, he's not. No. Uh, he's a lovely man. I'm sure he's a very lovely man. Um, but Millsy's, Millsy's father was a stone, uh, owned, was stonemasonry, so I don't think they were murderers, they just made nice temples. <laughs> and they built yeah. some of the, his father... 
um, help build some of the mon most uh, the modern buildings in in Sydney at, at the moment, actually, which is pretty interesting. A side story. Anyway, I'll now move you on to Benji. We're moving on. We've last we heard from Benji, we were talking about this courageous American um, who I think was probably the uh, the man behind Captain America. I'd love to look into that and see if that was a case or not. Um, and we're moving on to Benji. Over to you. All right. So we're on to the attack of the dead men. So the Battle of the... Now, this is in Polish, so I'm going to mispronounce this. Apologies. The Battle of the Osiwak... Osiwak. Osiwak Fortress in 1915. My great-grandfather's Polish. Uh, Doesn't mean I knew anything about Polish people, but, but, you know, sort of... Well, you're allowed to mispronounce. I can pronounce it, yes. That's right. We'll forgive you. Cool. So the Battle of Osiwak Fortress in 1915... So the Germans had launched a full frontal offensive on the Osavec Fortress, and this thing's a big, massive castle on a hill. At the beginning of July, the attack included 14 battalions of infantry, one battalion of sappers, 24 to 30 heavy siege cannons, and 30 batteries of artillery. Equipped with poison gas and led by Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg. Oh, as, as in uh, of the Hindenburg Hindenburgs? Of the Hindenburgs Hindenburgs. Go on to be president of Germany. There you go. After the war. Very important man. Uh, the big balloon. And yes, the big balloon. Oh. Of Hindenburg The dirigible. Mm. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know someone, isn't it, strange side note, that has a bit of the Hindenburg. I did. Grew up in the UK. I had a, a friend of the family whose father had a piece. It was like, and it was out of plaque and it said it was part of the Hindenburg. I had an uncle that had a bit of the wood from the propeller of the Hindenburg, and it was all, you know, I mean, we took it as read it probably, it may not be, they may have been sold a piece of someone's Ford Escort, um, but we, we thought it was the Hindenburg. <laughs> Actually, my uncle has a, I think it's a one, one millionth scale replica of the Hindenburg. Wow. And this, it's a big, massive thing. Like a... I don't know how to. It's a, it's an audio podcast, so yeah. I can't show you how I'm looking, far as we speak my now. Arms are, he's got big arms. <laughs> it's a big, massive model of the the Hindenburg, well, which is very go. cool. That he bought off somebody in a market somewhere who was about to throw it out, which is unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, anyway, yeah, let's go. Sorry, we I, digress. I digressed. Sorry, I digress, particularly after a good meal. <laughs> <laughs> Please, mate. This is a serious uh, podcast. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> Have you no, got something for my? Not. I should go to the chemist. Have you got something for my digression? <laughs> Sorry. So the Battle of Osavec Fortress. Uh, so the Russian defences were manned by up to five hundred soldiers. So on dawn on August the sixth, nineteen fifteen, a tailwind was on the entire front. Field Marshal von Hindenburg ordered chlorine gas. Nasty. Nasty, nasty, nasty. Is it similar to mustard gas? I think, chlor- as we'll get into in a minute, I think chlorine's much, much worse. Okay, sorry, I'll let you carry on. Yeah. So I think okay. the mustard gas mainly affects the eyes. Yeah. I think the mustard gas Lung. temporarily blinds you, whereas yeah. we'll find out the chlorine right. gas does terrible, terrible, okay. terrible things. Right. So, yes, at dawn on August the 6th, 
with a with high winds across the front. Uh, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg ordered chlorine artillery shells and just general bombs released from um, barrage balloons. Following the release of the gas, German artillery opened fire on the fortress with both conventional shells and more chlorine shells. More than 1,600 people were killed in the bombardment. Wow. So, naturally, after all that, the Germans were expecting to sort of just roll over the the defences. So 7,000 Germans advanced through the, uh, through the smoke and the mist of the bombardment, expecting little resistance. They were shocked when a hundred disfigured Russians emerged from the trenches, coughing up blood and pieces of their own lungs. So, chlorine gas gets into your lungs and mixes with the moisture in your lungs. And basically, your lungs melt from the inside out. Oh my god. And they start to dissolve, so... My god. Sort of the most... The horrible death I could probably imagine. Yeah, and here, again, you know, look, again, I mean, this is a music podcast as well, so I'll take it back to the music on that perspective. Yeah, sorry, it's getting a bit heavy in this one. No, 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 I like the heaviness, that's cool. We're living, it's heavy metal tones. No, but we're heavy. Um, it's just that it's a very daring subject, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, I mean, Slayer did, you know, Angel of Death, and, and I, you know, and I've been of Jewish descent, I understand the the the... the that it can be really hard hitting and and, uh, and hard to listen to, mm. uh, and sometimes not entertainment. But bands like these guys, um, it, it's not entertainment, and I mean that in a sort of it's infotainment. You know what I mean? Sort of. It, you know, yeah, like, it's entertaining, but it's it's powerfully inform inform infor- uh, can't get the words out. Uh, 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 um, informative. You know, yeah, yeah, like like we discussed in, um, or we we mentioned in in episode mm. one, it's not about glorifying no. these things in war, but it's about sort of, oh, I don't know, it's hard, it is hard to explain. Yeah. It's about glorifying the deeds and the bravery, sort of yeah. thing. Not not the war itself, yeah. but about these remarkable people that achieved remarkable things in a yeah. remarkable. Period and I, of history, and I think they, I think they capture it musically. Um, I really think they capture it. Um, I think the power metal is the wrong term for them because power metal would not capture this. Power, power metal just wouldn't capture it. No, no, power metal to me is it's swords, it's dragons, it's yeah, yeah, it's inherently silly. Yeah, very high falsetto vocals. Yes, yes, very, very high. And Joachim Broden from from Sabaton is definitely a baritone. He's not. He's yeah. not a, he doesn't do the high. No. He's, he's not a King Diamond. He's no. a low. Yeah, growling, but not growling. But not yeah. growling. But yeah, yeah, it's a it's a deep, it's a deep rumble. Yeah, amazing, really. Which I, which I think fits the um the subject matter very well. I don't think I could take it seriously if it was. And that's what I'm saying. Is what I get back. I mean, you're, I'm, I'm sorry. I've sidetracked because I've got a little bit. Um, <laughs> no, no. Of, well, this is a music <laughs> podcast, not exclusively history. So no, but it was just the, the image of a man's lungs melting suddenly. I had to go. I had to go somewhere else. Sorry. Um, bring it. Yeah. yeah. But, it but, but no, 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 no. This is very important because people listening to this have to understand this stuff happened, and these there are people. There will be someone listening to us today, somewhere in the world, who is related to one of those people. Absolutely. Somewhere, 
and, 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 and they may not remember or even care to remember. But bands like this are keeping this this sort of heroism and damn right stupid is stupidity as well alive. This one is mm. <coughs> because we're talking about hero, heroics here, but it's also a lot of stupidity as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, in that respect. But anyway, carry on. Lung melting man. The stupidity of war in mm. general. Yeah, so, yeah, shelled, shelled with chlorine gas, so they expected, uh, obviously, to just sort of roll over the defences. So the Russians rose from the trenches like zombies back from the dead. And these are men literally coughing up their lungs, pieces of their lungs, faces melting off, like this is the most horrific thing you can ever imagine. So the Russians rose from the trenches, opened fire, and attacked the Germans and managed to push them back. Wow, can you imagine? So um, they've been shelled with this unimaginable modern warfare, because it is modern to that point. Chlorine gas would have been a modern modern uh, um, uh, a way of fighting. And, you know, not armed with gas masks. Why would they have gas masks? They would, I mean, they would have known gas masks. Mm, especially being the Russians were... Again, poorly equipped. Poorly equipped, poorly trained. Yeah. And, all, and all they still stuff. managed... I mean, I would have just crawled... I mean, no disrespect, I would have probably rolled over and died. But these guys have got up and kept going. It's mm. just unbelievable. Mm. So, yeah, I think most most of the troops were incapacitated and then sort of just literally rose zombie-like from the dead to defend this trench. There's a good. That'd be a good movie for that one, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Obviously freaking the Germans out. So the Germans were so shocked they retreated that rapidly back through their own lines that they managed to run into their own machine gun fire, into their own artillery, through their own traps that they'd been setting as they'd been advancing through. Oh, I mean, no one wants no one wants innocent people to die, but that's, that's pretty spectacular, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, as these sort of ghouls rose from the grave to defend their, their wow. trench, which is absolutely... And could we... Wind back a few seconds. What was the name of the of the of the uh, of the place they were defending? Oswak Fortress. Oswak Fortress. Fortress. Thank you. So again, there's probably somebody listening in Poland that can look at their window and go, "Oh, hey, Oswak Poland. Oh. I can see that place from my house." Or yep. yep. I know where that is. Or, it's a beautiful you know, country, Poland, so I can imagine there's people there. Yeah. There'll be somebody listening mm. that has a link to uh, this tragic, mm. tragic event. So yes, yeah, so the, uh, the zombie-like Russians rose from the trenches, opened fire, and managed to run off the Germans. Wow. And what's the lyric attached to that one that you want to talk about? They'll be fighting for their lives as the enemy revives. Russians won't surrender, no, striking fear into their foe. Wow. And, uh, I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? Uh, and do you think, I mean... I think I think back at there's a, a story I won't go into the full web story, um, but there's a a battle in the Second World War, Hill Four, um, where they were defending the British were defending they were stopping the Japanese coming into I think it was Burma, I think it was Burma. I'm, I'm, if I got it wrong, I'm sorry. And you know this this one 21 year old sergeant gets the uh, Victoria Cross because. They'd buried into the hillside, these British, and they were fighting off the Japanese who were just coming and rolling over and dying in waves of hundreds and hundreds. And he could see that his fellow um, 
combatants down in the trenches were running out of ammunition and were being overrun. So he ran down with pockets full of ammunition and he chucked it at his mates. And then he stood on the hill, two Tommy guns, I can just see it, you know, and he's firing like rapidly these two Tommy guns at these Japanese and they kill him instantly. I mean, he's a, he's a sitting target. 21 years old. I don't know if I could do that at 21 years old. You know what I mean? I think about what was I doing at 21? I wasn't running down a hill with two machine guns. No, no, absolutely not. You, you know? So it, the, these levels of heroism is just incredible. Anyway, back to you, my friend. Sorry. Well, yeah, so the... Uh, obviously, the Russians were all sort of killed to the man by mm. the end of the day, but they managed to hold hold their part of the line or their trench long enough for the uh, the rest of the Russian forces who burned down the fortress, well, attempted to burn it down and mm. managed to flee back to safety. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of heroism... Yeah. So what, what was the... So the when fort- you're dying in a trench of, you know, mustard... Uh, not mustard gas, chlorine sorry. Gas. Chlor- chlorine gas. Like, I couldn't think of anything worse, but what? to stand back up and go, hang on. Yeah, and you've got guns fired at you. Yeah, absolutely. You're still under constant artillery bombardment and, and all that sort. Yeah. And uh, yeah, unbelievable. Do you think? Do you think though? They in somewhere in their deep racing DNA of their mind, they went, "We're dead anyway. Let's just go as we can. Take yeah, some out. Yeah, take I, some out. You know." Absolutely, that's probably part of it. Yeah. Sell your life as dearly as possible. Yeah, and that's what. It's, well, that's a very apt term. That sell your life dearly. You know, I mean, it's easy to. I mean, we all we all know the images of. Senseless murder, as the the Brits, you know, sixty thousand. Was it sixty thousand a day? At, mm, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, yeah, sixty thousand. Yeah. Sixty thousand dead or wounded. If you think about it, people out there listening to this, uh, if you're sports fans, or uh, if you think about the capacity of your football ground, so in England, say West Ham's capacity is fifty eight thousand, Wembley is a hundred thousand, hundred over. You know, you think about the capacity. The MCG is eighty thousand. That's almost the entire. The entire capacity of a major sporting arena in one day killed. Mm. It's just, it's just, it's, it beggars belief. It is hard. That's one of the things uh, a lot of people sort of getting into the First World War for the first time, or it's just that the numbers are so, so huge that they don't mean anything. Like, what's, what's a hundred thousand men or millions of yeah. men? Like, it, it, it means nothing. Nothing, yeah. When it's, it's almost, when, it, when it's just facts written on a piece of paper. But, yeah. Yeah, it's probably the best way I can think of explaining it. Imagine your local sports stadium, however yeah. many people that fits. Yeah, imagine them dead in a day. In a day, and then just multiply that day after day after day yeah. after day. And then the not not just that, but the exponential knock on. Each one of those people would have had mums, dads, brothers, sisters, wives, and children. And you know, you take the sixty thousand, and if you think the uh, the in nineteen um, in nineteen eighteen. The average household size of the UK was four. So if you take that and times that by 60,000, um, that's a, a number that I can't even, you know, because it is the knock-on effect. Yes, that they didn't all die. The 60,000 died, but the lives that they changed mm. back in the country they're from is just... And and, and, and again, I know t- it's a music podcast, so it's getting heavy, guys. I mean, but... You know, it's really brave, very brave, because you can uh, bands can be mocked. You know, uh, I know a few war band, a few bands, other bands that tend 
to sort of add a war-based theme to their music and it, it, it is almost not mocking is the wrong word but it's almost flippant whereas these guys don't there's a definite reverence mm. in their music and their lyrics I like, like I say it's quite easy to, to sort of attach yourself to like the war or World War Two or mm. stuff like that just to be edgy just to make a name for yourself yeah, yeah. or for the imagery I mean yeah. we all know people that do that oh god yes I mean I mean, there's some there's a, there's a form of there's some form of disgust I think when you see someone walking down the street and I saw it recently in Sydney you know someone's walking down the street and they're in like US Army out, you know Second World War outfit now maybe he he's a nutter and, and that's probably fine good possibility uh, he probably is a nutter but at the same time, it's not good taste, you know? No. I don't believe... I like bad taste, don't get me wrong. I love it, a bit of bad taste. But there is a point where you go, no. You know, I... Um, this is a sidetrack story before we go to the break. My brother... Um, I'm going to say this because it doesn't matter to you guys. No one's going to know my brother. My brother had this thing for collecting Nazi memorabilia. Very much like, Mo, like Lemmy did. Now, my brother was not a Nazi. My older brother, Andrew, was not a Nazi. By any shadow of the of the, of the of the state, not at all. He was just fascinated with um, the badges and the memorabilia, like the the insignia. Mm. It wasn't about the Nazis. It was it's about the style. The style, and it, let's be honest, they were very very stylish. And a side note, um, it is actually fallacy that um, that uh, the fashion designer. Hugo Boss. Hugo Boss invented the outfits. He did not. He, in fact, he supplied the cloth like thousands of other factories during the Second World War. Anyway, that side note. Um, and I, was, I remember he decided one day to wear an Iron Cross. Why? I have absolutely no idea. And we're walking down the street. Now, I grew up in a rather large Jewish community. So you can imagine. Um, he's walking it and he had it under his, he had it on, he had it on around his neck. Not uh, and um, and you could barely see it. I mean, it was a hot summer's day. I remember we were going past. Oh God, the Reform Synagogue in West Hend- uh, Hendon Central, and this guy comes out and he was in his forties at the time. And I thought he was going to break my brother. Man, he was so angry. And Andrew t- took it off. Fair enough, he took it off, put it in his pocket, and we went home. He was shaking, and I said, "Why did you wear it?" And he said, "I." Didn't think it would cause... And this is the thing. People don't think... He didn't think that... And this was 30 years, 30, 40 years ago. This is not that far from the war. Mm. Two generations, three generations. And I just remember... I think I can see the day. The day he was such an idiot. uh, Because he didn't wear it with reverence. He just did it because he thought it looked good. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, anyway, side note. Sorry, I'm rambling. Yeah, I mean that's a, it's a that's an interesting thing. I mean, if you're walking down the street just sort of wearing Third Reich or yeah. war memorabilia, it's probably not the best way to be going about it. Like, yeah, I mean, we used to go to some really. I go with it. I used to go to these places in Camden under the arches, and to these military shops that had all this sort of dodgy Second World War stuff. Honestly, the stuff we used to buy, like tank badges, oak leaf clusters, um, death's heads. I even bought he bought a pair of jack boots that had blood in them. Like, I mean, crazy stuff. I'm, don't please, listeners, don't think I'm a Nazi. But not, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. I'm going to absolutely say he wasn't a Nazi and he wasn't a sympathizer. He just had this really morbid sense of 
what was interesting, you know? No, look, we're we're often intrigued by the uh, the oh, I don't know how do you explain it the the horrors. Yeah. And how I mean the the Nazis are intriguing. Yeah, I think it was his. I think for Andrew, it was um, it was more the we are Jewish, and it was a sort of. Um, well, there's that element. A little bit of Schadenfreude. Yeah, yeah, in, in, if you can use a German word. Something forbidden. So yeah. it's yeah. I think it's it a was. little bit spicier. I think it was. I mean, he had a he had a he had a Nazi. He, he managed to get hold of a flag that was flown at one of the rallies. I mean, it was just crazy. the people, the underground world that these people lived in. You know. I mean, I can I can relate to that. I've uh, like we've got a few um, here in Canberra a few military stores and stuff like that. And I remember being a younger man going in. And, and look, I've, I've got a collection of war stuff at home. I've got I've got an RTM 35 helmet. I've got a, an American helmet. Yeah. I've got a few Nazi daggers. Yeah, your war in I've general. Got, I've got badges. I've got American yeah. stuff. I'm the war in general. Yeah. I'm by no means a Nazi sympathiser or anything no. like that. Yeah. Again, I'm fascinated by that period and that side of history. Yeah, and I think that's what shows in this podcast, but also the reverence and the music that they come through. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't wear an iron cross down the street. <coughs> it might Sorry, guys. Yeah, look, I mean, it was bloody stupid. I mean, I have to honestly say, it, I, I'm, I, we're lucky we, we got away with our lives, to be fair. I was probably at nine or ten when that happened, and... Um, so it's like, what, eight, so what's that, 80, 81? I mean, it can be, you know, you can wear them in ironic sort of ways. I mean... Well, well the pistols did. This, I was about to say, Sid Vicious. Yeah, it was irony, and, and, and it was irony, you know. And it what, was about being shocking. Yes. A lot, and lots of people use yeah. Nazi imagery just, just to shock. Of to course. Be, to be edgy. It's Crates nothing... talking points, absolutely. right? Absolutely. But he just was an idiot. This, I, I'm not going to stand on any corner and say he was, he was a down-in-the-water down stupid idiot, because... He didn't get it. And it wasn't until much later years, I mean, that, that we've been thinking about this recently, that it started me thinking about just how much um, negative energy that he had in that house. I mean, that's a different podcast and a different story, but, you know, it was never really nice going into his room. And that was probably to do with the amount of, you know, if there's a pair of jack boots with blood in it, who knows what happened in those boots, you know? Yeah, he had, yeah, He had absolutely. Hitler Youth knives, he had, you know, you name it, trench coat. He had a a, a, a a German trench coat. Anyway, back to the song. Sorry. So we've, we've gone to the fact that the music is heavy and hard and it is quite confronting. Um, we've yeah, had, some, well, we've had a... the zombies of the Russian. What's next? So up next we have the Devil Dogs, the United States Marine Corps. All right. Well, I've just realised before, as we go on there, we've talked for 25 minutes without a break. <laughs> so we'll have a quick break and we'll get on to the devil dogs. We'll shill some capitalism. That's the way. Buy some goodies. Bye now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back, guys, to part two. I uh, hope you enjoyed those words of capitalism. Did you buy the mattress that it mentioned you to get? Uh, and whatever it says you might like to buy. I usually get ads for Subway, which is all right, because I quite enjoy Ooh. a good Subway oh, I must admit, eat fresh. Uh, although I did ruin it for my friend once and tell them they all taste the same. Um, but to, mm. You're not getting the right subs, mate. No, I'm not getting the right subs. Maybe I should get the German subs. I think I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, back on to part two. So what are we on to now? Devil dogs, I believe. I like that. The German subs. <laughs> Bit of war humour there for you. Yes, there you go. <laughs> All right, so the devil dogs. So we'll start off with a little bit of history. So the United States Marine Corps traces its back to the Continental Marines of the American Revolutionary War. Ah, yeah. So the Continental Marines were basically the soldiers assigned to the ships to fight. Right. So every battleship had a small detachment of Marines, which yep. were the sort of the, well, the Marine fighters. Yep. Um, so yeah, Captain Samuel Nichols in the Second Continental Congress on the 10th of November, 1775. Cool. That was the birth of the Marine Corps, as it's known. Right. So just a little bit of history there. So we move on to the Battle of Bellaloo Wood in June 1918. So the German propaganda, I believe, were the first... Well, this is sort of in dispute. They don't know whether it was the Germans that came up with this nickname or the Americans themselves for propaganda. The Tuffelschund, or the Dogs from Hell, is oh. what the Germans called the American troops. Yeah, yeah. And side note, this music, when you listen to this particular track, as I listened to it again um, yesterday, uh, yeah, 
it's it's I think it's probably my favourite on the album. This is one of my favourite tracks off the album. Yeah, it really thunders and and it has this sense of space, which I think is pretty amazing because it's it's a lot to get in it. It's quite um a quite a a, a spacious piece of music. It is. Mm. It is. So the um so this song in particular is about um so the Marine Corps battled for three weeks for control of Bellelu Wood. Uh, where are we? So I've just lost my spot. So the Marines assaulted the German lines on Hill 142 five times. Five times over the course of a week. Wow. And were repelled, but on the sixth attack, they managed to break through and eradicate the Germans from the forest. Wow. And this particular forest was an extremely important part of, I suppose, of the, of the front. Uh, yeah, and I and the, f- I mean, all wars awful, but mm. f- particularly fighting in forests is particularly hellish, especially with all the uh, the artillery, the splintering. Basically, it just um, amplifies the effects of all the artillery and all the bullets and all the grenades because it doesn't just explode; it explodes, and then the tree explodes and sends yeah. millions of splinters here, there, and everywhere. Well, this, and it's this interesting you should say that because I listened to a podcast the other day about this, and people think that people die of being shot by the bullet, right? Not necessarily. It's the it's the um, the dirt that gets in after the bullet hits. When a bullet hits the body in certain areas, if it's in the body and you can stop the bleeding, you're you're generally okay. It's the like um, who was it that died of his splinters? Um, no, not Napoleon. Um, uh, Reinhard Heydrich in the Second Heydrich. World War. Yeah. Thank you. So he, he he was shot in his car, um, but it was the it was the horsehair in his in his um, seats that got into yeah, the wound the, that the got horse hair filling that gave him yeah blood poisoning that he yeah. eventually died for yeah yeah but yeah so that's an interesting point so the first world war is where sort of frontline medicine goes from oh you've been shot we're going to saw your arm off to actual medicine how can we yeah save them how can we save them as best as possible so they can come back and fight again sort of thing mm. So a lot of the, I know, so sort of like the American Civil War and the Napoleonic War. I mean, plenty of people were shot and killed outright, but Mm. most of the deaths, you were shot in the arm or something like that. You died of blood poisoning. And it was the blood poisoning from whatever was on the bullet, or the, as the bullet went through your tunic, it was the fibres of everything that got stuck in your blood that killed you. It wasn't actually... It's incredible when you think about it. It It wasn't actually the gunshot, but because they had no idea of germs or antibiotics or Mm. anything like that, it was the most basic sort of medicine. Mm. As long as you could stop the bleeding, you would survive. Yeah, yeah, and even then, if you you had a broken arm, they'd just saw your arm off because they didn't know any better. They didn't know how to fix it. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't fix it. Amazing, yeah. Sorry, we sidetracked. We're talking about about these dogs of war. The dogs of war? Yes, so the the Marines, after their sixth assault, had finally kicked the Germans out of the forest. So it was First Sergeant Dan Daly, a recipient of two Medals of Honour, which is... I'm going to have to look deeper into this guy, because 
two medals of honour is ridiculous. He might be one of the only gentlemen in history to be awarded two medals of honour. Wow. But uh, he led his men forward with the very famous cry, Come on, you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? Wow. You could read that into two ways, couldn't you? Do you want to live forever as in be immortal to win this battle, or do you want to live tomorrow? I think it's more of who's afraid of dying. Yeah. Do you want to live forever? Let's just get in there and get it done. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a which job. is very much the American spirit at the time of just get it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't. I mean, they won the Revolutionary War for good reason, didn't they? In that respect, you know, a powerful nation, the Americans, even you know, even in a fledgling nation like they were then. Absolutely, absolutely. Sort of, and especially in this period, sort of like slow to anger, but once you've roused, yeah, the, you're the not giant. Yep. It's uh, it's it's going to be a bad time. Yeah. So I'll just briefly mention my lyric of yep. this uh, second to none, a marine and his gun, raising hell as they're fighting like dogs of war. Heart of the core and part of the law, the deadliest weapon on earth. Did you love that? Like that that there is a that's a great lyric. That so I think it was heads of the core and parts of the law. That's brilliant. Look, I may be badly butchering and misquoting this, but I think it was. I can't remember which American president that said the deadliest weapon on earth is a marine and a rifle. Yeah, uh, you probably uh, you probably got it spot on, and it's the truth, right? That's that's. So yeah, apologies, I can't remember which president said that, and I don't mm. want to misquote it. But wow, that's a great lyric. I mean, it bounces, it scans, it's powerful. Yeah. I think that's part of the main chorus, actually, that line. So yeah. it's repeated a few times that's to, to great I effect. Particularly love this heart of the core and part of the law. You know, um, it's very easy to make a, a lyric scan and, and fall out of place, but that's really quite a solid lyric. Second to none, a marine and a gun. And it just flows so well. It flows well, really it's... nice. If I wrote that, I'd go, okay. I'm done now. No yeah, more yeah. lyrics. That's it. I'm done. Thank you very much. That's my contribution. Bye bye. You just let, watch the checks roll in. Yeah. Ah, now we're coming up to something that's particularly uh, a, a fan, a thing I'm particularly favourite of, which is the. Mm, so this is probably somebody that everybody's sort of familiar with in one way or another. Mm. The Red Baron. Yes. Not Lord Flashheart. The Red Baron. The Red Baron. Not the terrible beard, brewed in Victoria. It's anyway, terrible. No, it's awful, people. If you've ever drunk it, it is awful. Yeah. I made a reference to Manfred von Richthofen on their website, and they had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> like, okay. okay. Sorry about laughing loudly into the mic there. If it ever hurt your ears, I wasn't expecting that one. That's it. So, yes, this is going to be an interesting one. So, yes, Manfred von Richthofen, the ace of aces. The man in the sky. I mean, he he wasn't the top scoring ace, but he was the most famous. He's you could mention the Red Baron to somebody walking past on the street today, and they'd go, "Oh, that's the guy from the First World War." Isn't yeah, he? he was a pinup boy, wasn't he? He was a good-looking, very Aryan. So on on both sides of the war, I have to say the um, the pilots were. Sort of the rock stars of the First World War. Yeah. So, be... look, just for some clarity, so we're talking 1915 here. So the Wright brothers' first flight was 1908, I believe. 
Yep. Yes, it was indeed. So planes have been around for four or five years, maybe. Literally the most cutting edge of technology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, dangerous. Oh, they're exceedingly dangerous. It's exceedingly dangerous. I mean, if you you've know, ever seen any of these old biplanes, they are wooden cloth. Yeah, yeah. The only metal parts are the engines and the guns. And I don't believe, it. and I don't believe these particular early um, parts of the planes were fighting planes. I don't think they had synced machine guns with the props. No, so it was just to drop stuff onto the into the trenches. One of the advantages the Germans had was the twin facing machine guns that would fire through. So the engine was synced to the machine That's guns. Right. So yes. the propeller, your machine guns would fire through the gap in your propeller right. as everything was working in sync together. That's right. Which is ridiculous, like how they came up with I this. Because when you think about it, someone's going, how do we fire our guns through this? Oh, we can sync the, the, the gun into the chamber and the trigger going from as the piston drops. Mm. This is crazy. Yeah. So I forget the actual term. For it, yeah, there is a term I have. There, there is a term, mm. but yeah, the the engine was, is good yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, the engine was synced to the machine gun, so you could fire. Th- basically, you could fire forward through as you were flying. Yeah, I think the Germans had it, but the Brits didn't, did they, at the time? I think the eventually the British mm. figured out how they, to do it through, like captured. Because they were tiger moths, weren't they? Mm. Yeah. So right. yeah, any any recovered German aircraft, you'd sort of uh, you'd reverse engineer it. And yeah. They'd figured it out by sort of the middle of the war. But yes, so Manfred von Richthofen. So Richthofen was born in Kleinberg, near Breslau, in Lower Silesia. I believe he's Poland now. Mm -hmm. It was Prussia at the time. Uh, Born into an aristocratic family of Prussian heritage. As as in the Baron. As in the Baron. The uh, von is a hint in his name. Yes. Indicates... Aristocracy. It does indeed. Yes. So he was um, in the cavalry at first. So the cavalry was probably the most gentlemanly of the the aristocratic mm. sort of thing. If you were from a from a proper aristocratic family, you weren't a foot soldier. You were a cavalryman. Oh, you would. You be rode good. around on your fancy horse in your fancy outfit, and yep, and you were at the back. Yes. Yes. So he was a yeah he was a runner for the cavalry, I believe he delivered, I think he delivered like water and food and stuff to the front line to the front lines which mm. he was uh, not not happy with. I can't imagine if he's from a posh family. Yeah, from a posh family, and you know, a young man wanting to do his bit from the war, mm. wanting to get in there and be a hero and. You know, this is still the beginning of the war, so it's all about the romanticism and heroics and yeah, yeah, and doing your chivalry. Car. Chivalry, exactly. So disappointed and uninspired by his non-combative role, he had a chance meeting with another pilot. I believe his name was Hans Bockler. Mm. So I think he was one of the first German fighter racers. Who uh, sort of said, oh, hey, man, if you're not happy in the cavalry, how about you come join the Air Force? We've only just sort of created it. Wow. You're a young, inspired young man. I think you'd do well in this this new Air Force. Which he did. He So he joined the Flieger Truppen in 1915. 
which I'm assuming is just the the Air Force at the yeah. time. Yeah. And he absolutely excelled. So by 1917, he'd already been awarded the Poile Marit, the Blue Max. Oh, the Blue Max, yes. So I the Blue Max that. was the highest... Um, the highest medal for sort of bravery in the First World War. Because it was a very good movie that they made about him in the in the seventies, the Red Baron. Yeah, yeah. And the they good, do mention the the Blue Max. The good thing about the Red Baron is there will be a hundred thousand movies, books, podcasts, everything. Yeah, Each he's one like of those. Is that the sex symbol with the First World War? One right? of those enduring legends that will never sort of fall out of yeah, out of style or fashion. So yes. Um, Awarded the Blue Max on his 16th confirmed air kill, and he was appointed leader of the Jag Staffel 11. Wow. Which was uh, sort of sort of filled with all the stars. It was sort of the number one air air unit. It was where they put all the... Yeah, yeah, all the, all the, all the aces. All the aces, basically. So, uh, Richthofen led his new squadron to unparalleled success, peaking during the bloody April campaign of 1917, where he shot down 22 British aircraft, (gasps) including four in a single day. Wow. By the end of the month, the British had lost 245 aircraft. You weren't surviving that because it was only wood and and, and canvas. If you, once you come out of the air, you weren't, and you hit the deck, you're gone. So there's a movie called Flyboys, which was, I think, released late, late sort of 2000s, and it deals with um, sort of the French. So early on in the war, before America had joined the war, the France had appealed to America and gone, hey, if you guys can send us any soldiers or anything like that, mm. you know, you'll be made citizens of France, you'll this, that, and the other. We know that America's not contributing combat troops, but you'll, you know, you'll be rewarded in some way. One of the units that they came up with was called the Lafayette Escadrille, mm. and that was the um, French Flying Corps, Ooh. filled with Americans. So they went, all right, we're going to make just an entire unit filled with American volunteers. Wow. And um, anyway, in, in the movie, in in one of the scenes, so, so all these young Americans rock up and they're sort of getting into their planes for the first time. And one of the Frenchmen in charge hands them all a pistol. And one of the Americans goes, oh, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Lean out of me plane and shoot at the other guy. And the Frenchman goes, no, no, that's for you. If your plane gets hit and catches on fire, you either burn to death or you jump out of the plane and plummet to the ground. Or shoot yourself. Or the third option is to shoot yourself. <laughs> Which sort of stuns all the American... Jeez. These young cowboys that go, oh, oh, this is serious, isn't it? Far out. I would never have thought about that. Wow. Like I say, because the planes are made, they're, they're just canvas and wood. Yeah. So as soon as you get a spark or something like that, the plane just lights Gone. up. Yep. Wow. And, I, and you're not going to survive. Very rarely did you survive a crash in one of these planes. Yeah, and the bullets that went through it would have gone straight into you. Jeez. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a... Bit of a depressing thought yeah. to think about. Having can, to, uh... Yeah, but you can see that you can see what you're talking about. How they were a very important part of the of the campaign of the whole war, really. Yeah, Along with tank. he takes us nicely back to tanks in the very first episode. Absolutely. So, like the tanks, the planes, 
they played their part in the First World War, but it wouldn't be till the Second World War that they really sort of came into their own. Yes. Yeah. Well, the Brits had the Brits had one ethos in the Second World War, and that was machines, not flesh, steel, not flesh. So they did, they they wanted to do. I'd rather lose machinery than mm. human lives. So we'll uh, yeah we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about now. So. Um, so Manfred Richthofen is in charge of Jag Staffel 11. So he fills it with his um, many of his family members who are also also pilots and all the other sort of young aces. Um, it's about now he decides to paint his plane red, the famous scarlet red, where the Red Baron comes from. And other members of his squad would decided to sort of paint their planes as well, sort of ostentatious colours, so like red and bright green and yellows and. It didn't really matter, did it? You could. You and that sort of stuff, because they went well. If our chiefs, he, everybody knows he's in the bright red plane. Yeah. We may as well all colour our aircraft and sort of thing. And this is where the flying circus name came ah, from. Ah, there we go. So because these gentlemen were so, sort of so popular and successful and good at what they did, they were transferred quite frequently from one front to another. And they'd sort of rock up in this big baggage train of trucks and tents and all sorts of stuff and brightly coloured planes and they were all handsome mm. young knights of the sky and so they sort of got um, designated the flying circus which they adopted and sort of embraced as their as right. their nickname sorry just taking a sip of my no beer. it's very nice yes I'm drinking my tea which is lovely so this is the last track on this album is it not on this particular one uh, no, I think there's two, two or three more. Sorry, I'm just trying tracks. to get my head around where we are. Okay, cool. Uh, sorry, I've just lost my spot in my notes. All right, on the morning of April 1918. The morning of April 1918, that doesn't make sense. No. <laughs> on a morning in April, April 1918, uh, while flying with his cousin, Wolfram von Richthofen, uh, they encountered a squad of Canadians over the Moreland Court Ridge, over the Somme battlefield. Um, so Lieutenant Wolfram was attacked by a Canadian fighter. Seeing this, the Baron um, sort of in, intervened to help his cousin. Because they were flying so low over the ridge, the uh, British soldiers would, I mean, because Shoot at them. because these planes are made out of wooden cloth, you could re- do reasonable damage with them from the ground with you know, just handheld weapons. Yeah, if if they were unlucky enough. So unfortunately, while saving his cousin, the Baron's plane was struck by a single three oh three round from a British rifle. Early Enfield, I would say. Yep. So it went through the left side of his plane, it penetrated his body, went through his heart and his <gasps> lungs, fatally wounding him instantly. Wow. So he managed to so he saved his cousin, he managed to run off the Canadians, and then he crash landed in a field close by. Wow. Um 
so it's again one of those contentious things nobody really knows who fired the shot that killed him mm. it's pretty much assumed to be the Australian shot him down because he was over the like an Australian part of the line I have heard that yes so I think the most agreed upon um because obviously everybody claims that they shot down mm. the Red Baron and when there's a hundred dudes shooting at a plane flying over, you don't know who it was. But I think they've narrowed it down to it was one of three Australian dudes that happened to be there at the time that were shooting yeah. at him. Hard to identify exactly who it was. Mm. But um, yeah, so he, he crashed, crash-landed. I think he was dead. Dead on. Yeah, impact. On, yeah. on impact, or, or very shortly after, mm. after his uh, mortal wounds. Uh, his body was recovered by the Australians. If you look up sort of famous World War One art, that's one of the famous uh, paintings. I think it's in the Australian War Memorial, but you can mm. obviously see it online. Is the Australian troops pulling, recovering the Red uh, Baron's body from his, um, from his crashed plane. Wow. Um, he was buried by the Australians with full military honours. As you'd expect. As you'd expect from a worthy um, a worthy adversary. Mm. Um, I think parts of his plane, like everything, are sort of all over the place. There's a few parts in the Australian War Memorial. I think they've got his flying boots. And the tail. And like his tail and like yeah. one of the machine guns. I know Peter Jackson, the New Zealand mm. film director, has a few pieces of his plane. Because mm. he has, a through his family, he's got a direct sort of... Oh, to the person that might have shot him down. A contact with the people who were there. I think his great-grandfather or something like that. His family members were intimately involved with it, so mm. he's got a few a few parts of it. Um, so go. he was 25. He was a boy, really. 25 when he died. So most of the pilots, well, all of the pilots were all young men. Yeah, young. Because the older men were all in the trenches. Wow. Doing their bit, and they wanted, yeah, sort of the the young men... Yeah. In the in the planes. Um, so yeah, so he died at age twenty five with a record of eighty victories. That's a lot. One mm. of the top scoring aces of World War One. Wow. So he remains today one of the most interesting and famous flying aces. Like I say, you can mention the Red Baron to and probably anybody it. in the world. Yep. If you're walking down the street in the Sahara Desert. Yeah. And you mentioned the Red Baron, somebody would probably know. Uh, yeah, from films and books to Snoopy, even Peanuts. Yeah, he is, yes, right. He's got the goggles on the top of the his... The Red uh, Baron, yep, when he's sleeping on his, um, his doghouse and imagining that he's flying... Yep, I think we've got that somewhere. the Red Baron, yep. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely one of those enduring names. And yeah, and I think musically as well, it's quite open again like they've really sort of grabbed that soaring aspect of it and that feel of, of, of freedom when you listen to this music as well I think yeah yeah absolutely that sort and, of, a, and a fantastic film clip as well oh yeah and again brilliant film clip and, and, and that sort of just draws it all together really nicely doesn't it hey we better go for one more break because we've got a little bit more to do we've gone a little bit longer than I thought we would today which is fine that's no problem and we'll come back off the other side and we'll have a chat about the last part of the album Bye, guys.
Hi guys, welcome back to part three of this extended uh, War-a-thon music marathon um, where Benji Murphy has been uh, enlightening us with some very, very interesting uh, uh, war-based facts to mix with your um, listening pleasure from Sabaton's uh, War to Endor Wars. Um, we're now going to move on to the last two tracks on the album, I believe. Uh, I will pass it over to Benji and away we go. All right, so we have the Fields of Verdun. So, Verdun, just the name makes you think of death and destruction on an unimaginable scale. The battle designed to be a meat grinder would live up to its reputation and then some. The mill on the muse would take the horror and destruction to another level that nobody thought possible. 774,000 dead on both sides in 11 months. <sighs> so the longest continuous battle of the war and one of the most horrifying. Which what? is saying something in wow. the First World War that this was known Seven, as a... 774,000 people in 11 months. Oh my God. Of action. Wow. I mean, if you worked out, I mean, if you if you worked it out, that'd be what, just under sixty thousand a month, sort of around. Like my maths, I'm not a maths genius, but that's a. I mean, compared to the first days of the song, different. But yeah, my God, over yeah. a sustained time, the the level of just continuous attrition at Verdun, I think, was the even when things weren't you know there weren't major offensives happening, it was just a grind. Wow. It was just, yeah, which is what it was designed to be. It was just designed to grind the French army down. Yeah, and if you think about that and musically as well, I mean, I've, I again listened to the Fields of Verdun um, on the coach back from Sydney yesterday, and it it really does. It's it's oppressive mm. as a track. I mean, you might think it's not because it's like, oh, it's how can it be? It's entertainment, but it's really heavy. It's an extremely difficult song. Uh, all of them. I mean, I've said this before. I'm repeating myself, but they're all difficult. Subject matters, don't they? None of them are. I just sit down and write a song about daisies and ponies and. Yeah, it's heavy shit. It's a very heavy subject matter. Yeah. Seven hundred and seventy-four. So. Oh my god. Okay. So yeah, so Verdun's been a, a pretty important city in France for a while, a couple of, couple of thousand years. So mm. I mean, if you Google the Battle of Verdun, it'll come up with. There's been a couple of battles of Verdun over mm. the. Over the centuries. So it's an important part in France. It yeah. is, it is. So it's a, it was sort of an important strategic sort of fortified city on mm. the way to Paris. Right. It's one of the main obstacles if you were trying to Hence the on. reason the 774,000 dead. Right. So knowing that the French would throw everything into a battle for the ancient town, the Germans made their move on the 21st of February. Over the course of 10 hours... 808 artillery pieces would fire a million shells. A million shells into the bank. My God. Of the river. I don't think... I think at the time it was the highest concentration of artillery in any one spot. Oh, I can't imagine. In the history of anything ever. I can't imagine it even would get topped now, would it? I think some of the battles afterwards surpassed it. Wow. Like I think the Battle of the Somme and stuff like that were 
hundreds of millions of artillery shells fired in a, in a certain amount so of time. Let's be honest, the only one making any money out or anything out of this war is the people making munitions. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The people selling arms in the First World War. Well, that's how America became the superpower that it is today. Selling munitions. Because they sold everything to everybody. In both world wars, not just the first one. Wow. But especially in the First World War, because America wasn't involved until later on in the war, they happily sat out but went, hey, we'll sell whatever we can to everybody because this isn't our fight. But Wow. Yeah, so the concentration of so much fighting in such a small area for so long absolutely devastated the land around Verdun. Uh, resulting in just uh, absolutely hideous conditions. So the rain, the heavy French rain combined with the constant tearing up of the grounds and the clay turned the area into an absolute wasteland. So if you Google Verdun today, you can still see... The marks. All the marks. Wow. It literally looks like the moon. Wow. Uh, yeah, so rain combined with the constant tearing up of the, the ground turned the clay of the area into a, an absolute wasteland and just filled with human bodies. Shell craters would fill with water, becoming so slippery if you fell in, basically you'd drown. And these aren't just shell holes filled with water, they're filled with bodies and sort of the uh, like the byproducts of chemical weapons. Yeah, and the, the, the chlorine. And yeah, the... so it's just this horrific slime sort of thing it's not really water and filled with bodies and oh wow absolutely horrific of all the battlefields in all of human history Verdun ranks as one of the absolute worst but it's not one that rolls off the tongue isn't it you think of Passchendaele you think of the Somme Yeep you know, it's, Verdun's not that one that, that, that comes to mind. I think because there was sort of... I mean, this is debatable whether Verdun was of sort of any military importance. It's been sort of debated back and forth. And that's why it's not mentioned y- too much? Yes, it was an important military target that needed to be taken. No, it was just a battle designed to kill Frenchmen. Ah, okay. Sort of thing. But either way, it basically just ground up both sides. So the French eventually did end up defending Verdun and and holding it to the last sort of man. Wow. They shall not pass was the catch cry of the... uh, So it wasn't just wizards. French, yeah, yeah. So for all you Lord of the Rings fans... It wasn't just wizards. Wasn't just Gandalf the Grey. Um, So as well as... The men sort of out suffering in the in the trenches and the mud. There were a series of forts around Verdun that had been built sort of over the over the years and the centuries, and a lot of them weren't particularly useful because most of the sort of the the guns and the cannons and the weapons had been stripped off all these big forts uh, so to that... to be put in other places. Yeah, 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 yeah. But still, these are big, massive. I mean, you can, I think. T- most of these places still stand today. So you mm. can Google, like, sort of Fort Vaux, Fort Dumont. Right. And some of the other ones. And these things are massive. Like, these are enormous, giant constructs of sort of steel and concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much like the Germans uh, in the Second World War, their concrete uh, bunkers across the, the line. A- absolutely. Mm. So, look, these, these forts weren't... 
particularly useful. They were basically there... Early on in the war, the French realised that the amount of firepower and stuff like that, these forts aren't going to hold up. But they they can still slow people down, so we're still going to jam dudes in them and get yeah, it. Yeah. It's still a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, uh, a defensive obstacle you get past. And I have to say, that was some of the worst fighting was over these forts. Hmm. Because, uh, like... So these are massive things you can imagine with like hundreds of dudes jammed in these corridors. There's no ventilation because you didn't want to get gas, so there's very little air. Yeah. You're hot, you're sweaty, you're in a giant concrete box, basically getting pounded by artillery 24 hours a day. Because that's, that's how you had to batter these forts, Dan. You yeah, just yeah, had yeah. to pound them and pound them and pound them. Oh my God. And for the men inside, you think, look, I'd probably rather be inside rather than outside in one of these sorts of battles but it's yeah sort of a different sort of hellish existence you're essentially trapped in this in this big steel coffin getting hammered and you know the germans are coming and you know that they're going to break in eventually that's that's what did happen yeah so the, they, they overrun the french in the end yeah yeah and so some of the worst battles that happen are in these tiny narrow concrete corridors basically basements trying to get into this fort so it's all handheld hand so it's, hand. yeah yeah so it's these men fighting in the dark with pistols and grenades and and bayonets trying to fight their way into these corridors and just absolutely horrifying like wow some of the worst sort of horror that i could imagine yeah. in a war in a war that's you know already fully horrific Already known for how horrific it is. Yeah, yeah. Verdun was definitely the top of the... Uh... I have to say, this this last few weeks that we've been talking about this subject matter and, and, um, and you know, and I, I have changed my mind on the view of the war. I used to think, oh, well, you know, it's a few ch- trenches and 60,000 people and away you go. You don't really know. It doesn't until you start talking about this sort of stuff. And, and I, I mean, it sounds flippant, but the music... Sort of gets it and sort of doesn't, you know. But at the same time, it's very, it's you can see why it was, and it was the you know the most devastating war in history. You, you, I mean, pound for pound, body for body, you can see why, can't you? I mean, it's completely senseless as well. But anyway, that's you know. So one of the worst things about what Verdun was so France very early realised that you sort of had to rotate troops out. You couldn't just leave people in the same place for weeks and months on mm. end, otherwise they, they end up breaking, and that's when you get shell shock and PTSD and all mm. this sort of stuff that was sort of just coming out at this time. Mm. Obviously, it had been around forever, but... Yeah, diagnosed. Yeah, Diagnosed properly. So, unfortunately, the worst thing about France's sort of rotating system was that everybody got to experience... The horrors of Verdun. Oh, uh, so it wasn't just a one... Uh, it was everyone. So it wasn't just a couple of isolated units or battalions or whatever. Basic, and that's why Verdun is such a sort of... Still today in France is such a upsetting oh my event God. because so many people were connected to it. Oh, my God. Not just the people that were initially sent there or whatever. Everybody got to experience Jeez. the horrors of Verdun. Oh my god! And um, like a lot of the World War One battlefields, has certain sort of um, things they were known for. So, like the 
the battles in Flanders it was the mud and the rain. Yeah. Because it's the lowlands. And, like, we're fighting in Belgium again. The lowlands, everything floods. Yeah. The mud and the stuff. So Verdun was known for its smell. Because of the cordite and the... So, uh, just the, the bodies. Oh, my God. So, apparently, God. troops marching up to the Verdun battlefield, you could... Before you could hear the guns, before you could see the fires and the smell the um, the artillery and stuff, you you smelled the, the rot. Death, the rot. I suppose again, that's, isn't it, it? It doesn't. I mean, that's very hard to bring across audibly in a music. That would be very tricky. It's to do. hard to uh, imagine what is essentially a charnel house of yeah. unburied corpses. Human waste because I mean you're living a, in trenches. Where where do you go to the yeah. toilet? You throw it over the trench, or yeah, you know, you, not to be crude, but you shit in the trench next to you, or you yeah. bury it, or yeah. Wow, and you just don't think about these things. And it's such a, it's such a big, big, even just this one alone. This one concept on the album alone is massive. Mm. I mean, it's 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 just I don't know how I would even go about trying to write that song. I mean, you've got the lyric here. I don't know. I I I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. So I'll read. So my lyric for this one is: As the drum roll started on that day, heard a hundred miles away, a million shells were fired, and the green fields turned to grey. Jesus. So the opening on uh, the opening bombardment on the Verdun was allegedly allegedly stumbling over my words here. Better have another sip of beer. Was allegedly heard as far away as London. Holy crap. Wow. I believe that. I would absolutely believe it. Because it's not that far to the coast of in France, Verdun, is it, right? And so the drum roll is... So drum fire was a certain type of artillery that you sort of... Basically, it was designed to land like a drum roll. So it was the... It was just constant... Thousands of guns firing a couple of seconds after each other, so you got no relief. Far out. Because as soon as the artillery stops, that's when everybody runs out of their defences and mans the the guns and the trenches because you know that once the artillery stops, that the opposing troops are coming. And here's that, we're back to the music, that that is actually here, you hear that in the music. It's there. They've really sort of come across... um, I mean, this... You know, people, this is as progressive as you're going to get in a metal album, this, I reckon. It's such a fantastic piece of progressive music. You know, um, it's a concept album, isn't it? Let's be honest. Oh, absolutely. You know, they may absolutely. not stick, they're not in, may not be in order, but it's a concept album after all. Anyway, we better get on to the next one because we're running out of time. Sorry. I want to go on over an hour already. And uh, so, the, uh, so the final song, Ghost in the Trenches. So I'm not actually, I wasn't terribly familiar with this, so this was something that I got to learn about while investigating this. So mm. First Nations Scouts, so I should say he's Canadian. So right. um, Canadian, not Native American, because he's not American. But no, uh, no, Canadian, First Nations. First Nations, Canadian, Indian, although I know that's not the correct term. Yep. First Nations Scout, Francis Pegamagabo. Yep. Known as Peggy. Yep, to his friends. Credited with killing 378 Germans and capturing 300 more. Wow. One of the most highly decorated indigenous soldiers in Canadian military history and the most devastating sniper of the First World War. Wow. In April 1915, 
Pegamagabo fought in the Second Battle of Ypres, where the Germans used chlorine gas for the first time on the Western Front. It was during this battle that he began to establish a reputation as a sniper and scout. He also took part of the, in the battles of the Somme, where he was wounded in the leg and received the military medal for carrying messages along the lines during these two battles. On November 6th and 7th, 1917, Peggy earned a bar to his military medal for his actions in the Second Battle of Passchendaele. Wow. When the battalion's reinforcements became lost, Peggy was instrumental in guiding them and ensuring them that they reached their allocated spots in the line. Wow. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? You think about heroism, one man, you know, and he's a forgotten man because he's an indigenous man, Absolutely, and especially being sort of indigenous, they're sort of like disconnected from yeah and probably considered and probably this is god i'm not saying this because i don't but this is why they probably considered them expandable you know they're not i mean you know it wasn't until very long ago that australia you know our our um indigenous people were considered just for a fauna so i can imagine that they were just thought well well chuck you along the line yeah yeah sort of oh look just another indian throw him in the line sort of yeah. thing yeah, which yeah. was yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the attitudes of the time. Yeah, what a what an amazing man. Jesus, three hundred and plus. Gee. So on August 30, 1918, during the Battle of Scarp, Peggy was involved in fighting off a German attack. His company was out of ammunition and in danger of being surrounded. Peggy braved heavy machine gun and rifle fire by going into no man's land and brought back enough ammunition to enable his post to carry on and assist in repulsing heavy enemy counterattacks. For these actions, he received a second bar to his military medal, becoming only one of 39 Canadians to ever receive this honour. Wow. Francis survived the war from the start to the finish, returned home and died in 1952. Oh, see, that's fantastic. He had a full life. Saw. I mean, I can't imagine he would have been mentally balanced, but but what a what a an amazing you know that's a yes he took three hundred and seventy four lives so he's a killer like all of them were, but he he got back and and I, you know we've just about took about seven hundred and seventy four thousand men mm. and women they fought in the front as well um, who didn't come back boys men and women. Whereas he made it back. How lucky is he? You think about it. I mean, it's not just luck, it's skill but, and bravery, but it's a fuckload of luck as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's, and that's one of the interesting things about the First World War, sort of the um, how much sort of the, the minorities contributed to... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like amazing. All the, uh, they're not Commonwealth nations, but the, like yeah. the Dominion... Yeah. Nations Empire nations. And the Empire nations. Yeah. Yeah. How much they sort of uh, contributed. They did. They, they, and they wanted to as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't, they weren't forced to, hey, come here, you do that. They, they, absolutely they wanted so. to. Look, we're coming, look, we have to wrap that up because it has been an hour and 12 minutes on this episode. Um, we will be uh, recording a little special um, in a few weeks' time. Um, with some of the stuff we didn't get to. As you can yeah. see, there's so much to get to. Maybe a bit of a postscript. A bit of postscript. There's been two fantastic episodes. I'm really, really stoked with 
um, with the ability to sit down and chat to Benji about this. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yes, I know it's not always fully musical. It's been a really learning big curve for me. I know that when I put this album on now that I'm going to think differently to the way I listen to it. I think you should all have a listen and see what you think. Um, again, thank you very much, Benji, for, for bringing your your knowledge to the, to the, to the show. And, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I'm happy to have you again on soon. That's all right, guys. Always a pleasure to, uh, to talk history and to talk music. And I have to say, look, if anybody is interested in any more of these sort of stories, um, so Sabaton themselves on their website... Yeah, all their albums, they have a breakdown of sort of the lyrics and the, a little bit of history behind the song, which is really interesting. They also have a YouTube channel where yes. they take a deeper dive into sort of the historical events that that inspired some of the songs, so we'll yep. put a link onto that. And I just want to give a shout-out to, so if anybody else is sort of interested in World War One or that sort of stuff, I mean, there's a, a wealth, a tome of knowledge on World War One, movies, mm. books... Every sort of thing's been covered, but if you're listening to podcasts, give the Battles of the First World War podcast a listen. Mike Cunya, he's uh, absolutely fantastic. He's a, an American fella, and he sort of does um, sort of day-to-day, week-by-week from the beginning of the war. He sort of covers absolutely everything. So if you want a really, really deep dive... I'll put the links in the show notes below so you can have a click on and see some of his stuff because I know I'm going to do that this afternoon when I um, settle down um, to to relax. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's been a great inspiration for me in my sort of uh, recent love of First World War history. Brilliant. But other than that, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I, so I, I really enjoy these sort of crossover um, kind of shows. It, it, uh, it uh, gets you to... Uh, you know, takes us out of our normal mundane music world and gives us a little bit of knowledge as well. So, thanks to guys again, and uh, as always, stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.